Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club of California. Good evening, and welcome to tonight's program hosted by the Markula Center for Applied Ethics and the Commonwealth Club Silicon Valley. My name is David DeCoss. It is my pleasure to introduce Nicholas Dirks. Professor Dirks is an internationally renowned historian and anthropologist and spent nearly four years as chancellor at the University of California, Berkeley. Prior to joining UC Berkeley, Professor Dirks taught and worked at Columbia University, the University of Michigan, and the California Institute of Technology. He received his BA from Wesleyan University and his MA and PhD from the University of Chicago. His scholarly honors include a Guggenheim Fellowship and MacArthur Foundation Residential Fellowship. He is also a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. Ladies and gentlemen, Please join me in welcoming Nicholas Dirks. Thank you, David, and it's great to be here with you this evening. So I'm going to try to paint the picture of what brings me here uh, tonight, and in a way, it dates back to February 1st, earlier this year, 2017. The image was broadcast around the world. Berkeley was on fire again, this time alight because of the violent disruption caused by a brigade of anti-fascists intent on shutting down a speaking event by the Breitbart provocateur and troll, Milo Yiannopoulos. Milo was coming to campus to speak as part of his year-long, and he called it this, dangerous faggot tour, promising to insult students who were transgender, undocumented, Muslim, feminist, or simply and misleadingly politically correct. Shortly after darkness fell on the California winter evening, 150 or so activists dressed in black, wearing masks, hats, and donning backpacks, coalesced and marched up Bancroft Avenue towards Sproul Plaza. Sproul was the original scene of campus protest over speech 52 years before and the space abutting the student union where Milo was due to speak a couple of hours later. Loosely named Antifa, the anonymous black bloc group set a fire in the middle of the street before entering the plaza, quickly dispersing into the crowd of students and others, some of whom were shouting and chanting, but all of whom were protesting peacefully. Within minutes, the Antifa activists, as if on command, began firing explosives as they broke through the barricades using them to smash open the tall glass windows of the student union while setting fire to a propane-powered lamp that had been installed to light up the plaza. It was February 1st, and Berkeley seemed to be in the eye of the political storm that had been gathering strength since the surprise nomination and then election of Donald Trump as president of the United States. Now, Milo Yiannopoulos had been invited by the Berkeley College Republicans following the playbook of other college Republican groups that had invited Milo for a nationwide college tour that had on occasion turned nasty and violent before. 
At the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, Milo had mocked and identified a trans student who had protested the UWM locker room policy. At the University of California, Davis, protests became so intense that the campus called off the event. And at the University of Washington in Seattle, just a short while before he came to Berkeley, there had been a shooting in which a demonstrator against Milo had been seriously injured, although the reverse story was told by fake news. In the wake of all this unsettling news, a significant group of faculty and an even larger group of students called on the administration to cancel the event. There were indeed real reasons to be concerned about public safety. We were receiving threats from some on the right who had promised to come to campus to ensure Milo's appearance and from others on the left who promised to come to shut it down, both promising to use whatever means would be necessary. And yet, of course, Berkeley is the iconic center for free speech, dating back to the famous free speech movement of 1964. And as a public university, in fact, we are now obligated to host speakers invited by legitimate campus groups regardless of their political beliefs. And the canonical heckler's veto sets a very high bar for preemptive cancellation of these invitations on the basis of generalized threats. So I decided that we were going to do everything possible ourselves to ensure that Milo would speak, including working with our police department to recruit backup support from other UC campuses and deploy a well-developed plan uh, to deal with the protests that we at Berkeley are somewhat familiar with. We were, of course, uh, uh, on the lookout for violence, but we uh, were ready for it, or so we thought. Nothing, uh, in fact, though, prepared us for the Black Bloc Brigade, which succeeded brilliantly in its mission to shut down the event. Yiannopoulos had to be escorted out of, the, out of the student union to ensure his safety, and the police had to disperse the crowd in an effort to prevent physical harm from happening to anyone in the building or on the plaza. The brigade caused major physical damage to the campus, cost us $100,000 just in repairs, and it caused even more damage to banks and other buildings, including a Starbucks uh, in the neighboring streets of the city of Berkeley. As the fire burned out and the Black Bloc group finally dispersed and left, we were relieved that no one was seriously hurt, and I was relieved that they didn't make good on their promise to come to the chancellor's residence, which is what uh, they were intent on doing. The Oakland Police Department either kept them from doing so, or perhaps they just, being outsiders, didn't know the way. But whatever it was, uh, uh, no one was hurt. Thinking we had avoided the worst of possible outcomes, we nevertheless woke up the next morning to a tweet from President Trump accusing Berkeley of suppressing free speech and threatening the loss of all federal funding. In truth, of course, we woke up to a new reality more generally as we worried that the status we had as the home of free speech made us a target either for a tweeted sleight of hand or for a new kind of violent assault on our college campus. Now, there hasn't been a literal attack on the university in decades. I think the last time the campus looked like a war zone, to this extent anyway, was in the struggle over People's Park back in 1969. But the university has, in some figurative respects, been under under attack long before February 1st. In recent years, politicians and members of the public had come increasingly to believe that the university is wasting public money, paying administrators and faculty far too much, 
charging too much for education, all the while driving the new generation of students into unsustainable debt. Families in California had become increasingly upset that investments in and commitments to academic excellence, as well as national and international prominence, have made universities like Berkeley more and more difficult for their children to actually get into. Many within and outside universities have decried our emphasis on research, unless it is in the service, perhaps, of direct applications, most of them biomedical, uh, that could be seen as directly beneficial. Students, of course, have protested each increase in tuition as if it were an abrogation of a basic social compact to offer education for free, despite plummeting state funding. Big-time college sports have increasingly been seen as exploiting student-athletes, using them to secure huge television contracts, pay coaches astronomical salaries, and generate fans and donations for who knows what in universities uh, from alumni. Students and others have accused universities of sanctioning or at least protecting perpetrators of sexual assault and failing to provide sufficient support for safe spaces and protective environments in the face of societal racism, misogyny, discrimination against sexual as well as other ethnic and religious minorities, to mention a few. In turn, other groups, mostly on the right, but some on the left, and media such as Fox News and Breitbart in particular, have systematically and repeatedly lambasted universities for being too ideologically uniform, too subservient to students who not only demanded to be coddled, but to be comforted by the radical pieties and prejudices that were distorting and, in their view, undermining American society itself. And everyone has been concerned that colleges and universities are not preparing students to get jobs, real careers, upon their graduation. Now, of course, and I covered a lot of different issues, uh, these concerns are real. And universities have not always been very good, to say the least, in anticipating and finding both real arguments and, for that matter, solutions to counter them. Having said that, some of the attacks have been uh, uh, caricatured, to say the least, and others, of course, uh, have been motivated by a wide range of political agendas that are very difficult to field when you're sitting uh, in a position of the kind uh, that I was sitting in at a university that is a great public university, but one that has many demands on it and increasingly less funding to uh, even support its basic operations. Uh, and I hope in the question period we can examine some of these debates and the multiple ethical obligations of universities with respect to some of these questions. Uh, of course, in addition to that, we live at a time of massive social, economic, cultural, and political change. And universities have too often assumed that their long and successful institutional traditions and their fundamental uh, longevity exempts them, in a way, from taking on the task of adjusting and changing their basic structures and their fundamental modes of operation. Instead, universities tend to change only when forced to do so, often by crises that precipitate hasty and sometimes even ill-considered responses. And yet, many of the concerns listed above have not only been exacerbated by a growing disenchantment with institutions in general, but they afflict public institutions in particular. And it is also part, of course, of a growing attack on the status of knowledge and the meaning of education itself, especially of a kind that cannot be translated either into high-paying jobs or immediate applications and solutions of benefit to me. 
Uh, beyond that, of course, although the principal focus for denunciation and critique in our post-truth era has been the press, the university is more than collateral damage. The university has been ridiculed, parodied, and through a succession of attacks, using the conceit sometimes of freedom of speech and not its reality, has, and, and open inquiry, has found itself increasingly dispensed with as a place where objective and or socially positive perspectives on everything from climate change to diversity can be brought to bear on public opinion and public policy. So in the wake of the riots around Milo and the ensuing reactions to it, we began to ask serious questions about how to respond and indeed whether or not we could take the narrative back even as we were assessing the real impact of that night on the university. We asked a series of broader questions as well, chief among which, what in our current era and under these kinds of conditions is to become of the university? How might we address the very real concerns and critiques directed our way, simultaneously preserving the best of traditions of inquiry, exploration, education, and public service, while expanding and enhancing cutting-edge research in fields ranging from theoretical physics, big data, artificial intelligence, to the concerns of humanistic study, the meaning of our lives, the structures of our society, the workings of the economy, the power of literature, not to mention the major crises around inequality uh, and, uh, and, and, and polarization uh, in, our, in our nation today. It has, of, of late, become even harder to justify other kinds of activities, uh, among them, for example, analyses of any kind of political events. And as you know, uh, the National Science Foundation some years ago, uh, after the entreaties of Lamar Smith, congressman from Texas, stopped funding political science because it was seen as inherently and exclusively ideological. In the face of massive society, societal changes driven by technological development, globalization, uh, and clear uh, and pervasive evidence of the seriousness of climate change, uh, not to mention the current issues around race, ethnicity, gender, class, and the like, have uh, put the university, I think, at the crossroads of some very different, uh, difficult uh, uh, challenges and, and, and dilemmas. Change we must, but how, in fact, can the university genuinely and ambitiously reinvent itself at a time when it needs to I think, protect itself from hostile forces across extreme right and even left political positions, extreme left, not to mention the many others who seem to have lost their belief in the idea of the university itself. Now, the idea of the university in California has been very powerful for a long time. And although uh, uh, the, the pattern here followed the pattern of many other states, I think the decision shortly after the Constitution of California was first drafted in 1849 to build a great university worthy of the dream of California uh, was one that, uh, that captured, in some sense, the spirit of the American dream. And, of course, it was realized. It was realized because of the Morrill Act and the, uh, uh, and, and the law that uh, Abraham Lincoln brought into being in 1862 uh, and the grant of land through that for land-grant universities uh, to make possible the founding of the University of California in 1868. And the history uh, began in a rocky way. The first 10 years, uh, the university almost didn't make it. Uh, it, was, uh, uh, it was full of uh, political strife, 
efforts on the part of Sacramento to impose direct uh, control over the, the curriculum uh, and, um, uh, and, and a variety of struggles that actually ended relatively well in the rewriting of the Constitution of 1878-79 when the university was actually granted autonomy uh, through the Board of Regents and uh, the relationships that still exist uh, to, to this day. And the university, as a result of that, grew to become what is arguably not only the best public university in the country, but one of the very best universities by any estimation. But, you know, it's a public university that has always been at the center of political struggle. And I think it both uh, exemplifies some of the major moments in the history of, uh, of our state and our country, uh, but also... Uh, is a case where the history of the university is, in some sense, uh, the history uh, of American uh, society more generally. So I'm going to flash forward up to 1960. And I'm sorry about this, but I'm a historian, so I always go back, and I'm going to talk a little bit about the 60s, and then we'll talk about the present. In October of 1960, Clark Kerr, then president of the University of California, was pictured on the cover of Time magazine as the master planner. Kerr's picture was framed by a succession of students streaming by the thousands through Sather Gate on their way to graduation from the finest public university in the United States. Kerr, who had been the first chancellor of UC Berkeley before becoming president, was featured because of his role in developing and securing approval for the master plan in which uh, he devised an organizational blueprint for public higher education in the state. Uh, which accorded different functions to the community colleges, to the Cal State system, and to the university. Uh, Kerr effectively worked with the governor, Governor Pat Brown, to ensure that the growing population would have near universal access in California to an excellent college education. Uh, and it had connections in the system, and to this day does what the master plan in 1960 dictated, which is to have a third of all of the students of the UC come in as transfers from California community colleges. Now, Cal's, uh, sorry, Kerr's signal accomplishment for Cal was breathtaking in its scope for an envisioning a steadily growing set of public colleges and universities. It created vital connections uh, that were a kind of exemplification of this dream of social mobility. Now, we, we can argue about how much it was realized, but it was, uh, in some sense, better uh, organized in, 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 in the master plan than it was in any other formal scheme for higher education in any other state in the U.S. Um, and it did so at a time when at the apex of the system there was a university which at the time was being ranked as, uh, as, as equal to uh, Harvard in terms of academic excellence. But of course that was 1960. And that great utopian moment was soon disrupted in ways that would rock the very foundations of the university. Berkeley, where, as Newsweek put it in 1970, things happen first, was convulsed by student protest and political struggle in 1964 when the free, when the free speech movement broke out on the background of Freedom Summer in Mississippi. Led by Mario Savio, a charismatic philosophy major who overcome, overcame a stutter to become a brilliant political orator, Berkeley students engaged in civil disobedience to allow them to advocate and recruit for the civil rights movement on campus. As the students gained growing faculty support against the backdrop of a conservative chancellor, 
who tried to hold the line against protesting students. Kerr deftly managed opposition from the Board of Regents and some powerful political figures uh, while ultimately acceding to student demands. Although Kerr himself had been only lukewarm in support of these demands at the outset, he nevertheless soon became widely seen by some regents and prominent Californian politicians as a left-leaning liberal who had capitulated to the frightening frenzy of student politics. The free speech movement was the first major concerted student protest on American college campuses, and it is not surprising that it attracted a great deal of attention here and indeed around the nation. On the backdrop of 1950s frat parties and panty raids, student politicization seemed altogether new. And for many in America, a sign of an impending takeover of colleges and universities by radical leftists, a troubling breakdown of authority for the new post-war generation, and a serious challenge to the prevailing ideal of American prosperity. As Ronald Reagan geared up his campaign to defeat Pat Brown for governor of California, uh, he soon alighted on the subject of student unrest, especially at Berkeley. The single most galvanizing issue behind his first political campaign, leading to a landslide victory that would reshape political conservatism in America to this day, was Reagan's claim in 1966 that he, if elected, would clean up the mess at Berkeley. That's a quote. The first thing Reagan did as governor of California was to persuade the regents to fire Clark Kerr as president of the university. It happened in the first regents meeting he attended in the January of 1967. And although the mess at Berkeley only escalated, it was, of course, ground zero for protests against the Vietnam War, the base for the rise of the counterculture on campus, and a symbol of youth rebellion and dissolution more generally, Reagan continued repeatedly to bolster his political popularity by decrying the failure of the university to respond to public outrage, all the while working to fan the flames of that outrage. He appealed to the worries of parents across the country by recommending, I quote, that protesters should be taken by the scruff of the neck and thrown out of the university once and for all. And although he praised the concept of freedom of speech, in fact, he went after academic freedom as a license for the irresponsibility of professors. And as Jill Lepore, a historian at Harvard, wrote in a piece that appeared actually this morning in The New Yorker, uh, and I'm going to quote from her piece, on the stump, he complained about undergraduate malcontents. And as election day neared, he made a point of denouncing invitations issued by students at the University of California, Berkeley, to two speakers, Robert F. Kennedy, who was slated to talk about civil rights, and Stokely Carmichael, who had been asked by the Students for a Democratic Society to deliver a keynote address at a conference on black power. As Reagan said, we cannot have the university campus used as a base from which to foment riots. He urged Carmichael, at that time the chairman of uh, SNCC, to decline the invitation, which was actually a way of getting him to make sure that he would appear. And very shortly after his appearance on campus, Reagan won a landslide election. Uh, you know, and he, he said shortly after being elected governor, when asked about inviting communist speakers to campus, that free speech, and I quote again, does not require furnishing a podium for the speaker. So indeed, when Newsweek did that cover story on the University of California in the fall of 1970, just 10 years after the timepiece, the piece on time about, about Kerr, it was clear that the 60s had taken a serious toll. 
The University of California, it wrote, and its cover story today is in very bad trouble. Like many other U.S. universities, UC is plagued by increasingly severe financial strictures and bitter quarrels over the caliber of its teaching. Beyond that, it suffers unremitting assaults from a hard core of students and faculty on the left and unbending antagonism from politicians on the right, led in California by no less a light than Governor Ronald Reagan. Newsweek went on to report that the chancellor, uh, after a very short time at the helm, had announced his resignation to return to a post of being a professor at the University of Michigan. So the Newsweek story asserted that the biggest problem was the loss of confidence for and support of the university on the part of the general public. It quoted UC's chief legislative, budget, uh, legislative lobbyist, Jay Michael, as saying that the university used to be, he said, a, a sacred cow. Legislators vied for the opportunity to help. Now it's just a political liability for legislators to support the university openly. And it detailed the continuing contests, often very public ones, between the governor, the legislature, the regents, and the faculty, showing how the loss of trust had led inexorably to budget cuts and was likely to lead to even more. Uh, and uh, it concluded its story by averring uh, that what happens in California, where things happen first, may well prove to be an omen for the future of higher education throughout the U.S. Now, of course, Berkeley did not go into the kind of decline that Jeremiah would have suggested. And it's entirely possible that the same is going to happen today and Berkeley will be fine. But I think it's important to look at the present moment, which in many ways, in my view anyway, uh, is even more challenging than the time of the 1960s. And I think the story here is not just about the university, as I mentioned before. It's actually about our society. It's about even uh, uh, the American dream and what it might, in fact, have uh, for its future. Now, as I mentioned earlier, there's no, no, no doubt that public concern about certain things, including our commitment to the vitality of free speech and political debate, uh, on American college campuses has legitimate causes. And as one important uh, recent index of this, the Heterodox Academy, established by Jonathan Haidt at NYU, has been strongly critical both of the ideological uniformity of college campuses among faculty and of the preeminence of identity politics among students, leading to strong constituent support from both groups for safe spaces, speech codes, trigger warnings, bans on controversial speakers who threaten members of particular identity groups, and so on and so forth. The uh, Columbia professor Mark Lilla's most recent book, which got a lot of press, argues that the politics behind identity politics is a dead end for progressivism. And yet these critiques, whether one likes them or not, they certainly uh, invite serious debate, but they tend to, at the same time, feed into or at least provide support for the current round of attacks from the extreme right, and hate and Lilla would see themselves as, as classic liberals uh, um, on the left. But they feed into uh, the current round of attacks from the extreme right, even as they also inspire a strong reaction from many left progressives who see the argument that we need more conservative voices on college campuses or must critique movements like that around Black Lives Matter, which is what Lilla does, as a way of negating all the political progress of our last decades. Some faculty have recently suggested that the First Amendment itself needs reconsideration and revision, given the implicit but no less impactful violence of hate speech 
on our campuses. The militant anarchists of the Antifa movement have no interest in the First Amendment at all, seeing it and its defense in the language of the marketplace of ideas as the bedrock of an obsolete liberalism that has failed minorities, the poor, the dispossessed, in favor of power elites, a capitalist system that is rigged, and now increasingly white supremacists and fascists. But as, you, as, as, I, as I recite these different uh, antinomies, there's a bit of crossover, and sometimes phrases we associate with one political side uh, actually crop up on the other. Uh, and indeed, uh, it is, I think, all the more difficult now to negotiate some of these issues in the time of Trump. We are all aware of what his campaign and election has licensed and how the dangers to students, whether Latino, African-American, DACA, LGBTQ, are both highlighted and made even more real. But I believe that the principles both of free speech and of academic freedom are, in fact, more important than ever before. And as I wrote in the Washington Post uh, in an op-ed that uh, David read and on the basis of that invited me here, I believe that the use of free speech uh, has to both be defended, but it also has to be seen as a sword that is being used uh, against the supposed hypocrisy of the university, which in turn is part of this broader assault on the university, which is coming from multiple directions, uh, but which is one that we have to address. Uh, because too much of this critique, and it comes from a lot of different places, uh, is on the idea of the university itself. It's on the social functions of the university, which includes social mobility, inclusion of populations that have never been in college before, that have never seen themselves as, uh, as, as, as college-going. It includes um, uh, the fundamental importance of the knowledge we teach and the knowledge that we make in universities. It attacks uh, what is enlightened debate and often substitutes for it uh, just a kind of uh, a theater of provocation. Uh, it attacks the principles of inclusion and diversity, as well as paradoxically uh, on genuinely open and critical debate. And it attacks the critical role of science and even expertise in public policy. Uh, and in the end, it, of course, attacks intellectuals and serious thought leaders more generally. So, so this is the context in which we, uh, I think, now operate. I have no easy answers, although I'll be very uh, pleased to take your questions and, uh, and consider uh, more concrete examples of the kinds of things I think universities have to wrestle with and have to, uh, have to increasingly figure out. Uh, even at a time uh, when we uh, hold on to the past at, uh, while at the same time understanding the need, perhaps, uh, for universities to change more than ever. Part of the uh, backdrop for, uh, for, of course, these discussions is another kind of critique, which is one that I think we all have to take very seriously, that the university hasn't changed enough. And in an era of disruption, and I don't mean this kind of disruption, uh, universities have uh, tended to fall back and rest on their laurels. And as I noted before, I do think that makes it more difficult to respond seriously to some of these current political challenges. But the current political challenges are not separable from the other kinds of concerns. And I believe that what we have to do as educators, as students, as faculty, as administrators, and just as people concerned about the future of the university, is to find new ways to articulate 
to advocate, to defend the very idea of the university while making sure that the reality of the university, at least as much of the time as possible, rises to meet the aspirations we hold as part of that great idea. Thank you very much. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Listen to thousands of our podcasts on iTunes or Google Play. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 450 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. And now, back to our program. Thank you very much, Nick, for your very provocative remarks and all, and many questions already flowing in, and thought I might just start with one uh, that uh, picks up uh, the kind of direction of your comments. In the last week or so, uh, Attorney General Sessions has made some, gave a speech at Georgetown uh, about uh, his concern about free speech on campus, and I'm wondering if you might comment on uh, the Attorney General's remarks in terms of your broader set of concerns about the political um, sort of currents running and the status of the university? Well, that was an extraordinary speech, to say the least. I was actually in Washington when he made the speech, which doesn't matter because I wasn't there, and probably wouldn't have been able to get there uh, because, uh, in fact, at, uh, at Georgetown, where it was held, uh, a significant group of students and faculty who had been offered invitations to attend this uh, speech were actually told at the end that uh, there'd been a mistake and they weren't actually invited. Uh, it turned out they were the ones who were critical of, uh, of Jeff Sessions. So that's just a backdrop. Uh, but of course, uh, not to keep going back to Berkeley, but he did. Uh, <laughs> he went after Berkeley and he said it's an obvious example of how free speech on, on, on college campuses is simply not, uh, not being honored anymore. Uh, he went after, of course, the NFL protests at the same time. Uh, and I think you're all aware that there's a reporter uh, who is still uh, going to be uh, brought up in court for laughing out loud at one of his remarks in an uh, earlier press conference. So it was a kind of extraordinary speech. And, uh, and again, you, you, you almost can't make this – well, you can't make this stuff up uh, – that a speech about free speech would uh, spend so much of its, of its time actually encouraging certain kinds of censorship. That being said, uh, the Department of Justice has already acted on his speech, uh, and I'm sorry I don't remember the name of the college, but there is a case that came up through the works of a student who was proselytizing Christianity uh, on the public square and disturbing, according to administrators, uh, disturbing public peace by, by talking loud and disturbing classes and so on, and uh, he was told that he shouldn't proselytize there, that there were other places he could do so, and the Department of Justice is going to prosecute this case. But again, uh, it feels to me like much of what comes out of Washington uh, directed around uh, terms like freedom of speech. Uh, the Attorney General mentioned Berkeley uh, and all, and I think probably all of us here have been watching the events of the last couple of weeks up at Berkeley, and perhaps a lot of us are wondering, what the heck happened up there? <laughs> so could you tell us a little about what the heck did happen up there in the last couple of weeks? 
So first I want to just say that uh, the idea of free speech week, even though it was in part based or at least in part echoed, the idea of free speech year, which is what my successor, Carol Christ, had, uh, uh, had proclaimed as her intention, uh, uh, during which she would stage different kinds of debates between speakers who disagree uh, uh, seriously with each other and so on and so forth, and, uh, and, and, and work through some of the issues around free speech and open inquiry on, on, on Berkeley's campus. But, but the free speech week was not that. It was, uh, it was the idea of Milo Yiannopoulos, who was trying to reinvent himself after his uh, remarks, uh, 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 remarks he made on, on, on the radio that were released after he was uh, uh, in Berkeley in February. Uh, and, of course, he uh, was uh, uh, proclaiming in the press that he was going to come and that he was going to bring Ann Coulter and Steve Bannon and David Horowitz and Michael Cernovich and, uh, and all sorts of others. Uh, now, in the case of Milo in the first instance back in February, uh, he had been working with the Berkeley College Republicans. He had, a, he had a, an invitation from the student group. It was a legitimate invitation. Uh, uh, we'd worked through all the, all the regulations around uh, what the student group has to do, forms they have to fill, securities they have to stand, as standard practice for anybody inviting a speaker for a certain kind of audience at a certain time of the day or night. Uh, and... Um, and in that sense, it was it followed all the rules uh, of uh, uh, of the campus, and accordingly, uh, as I said, I made the decision that we weren't, even though many students and faculty were upset about it, we weren't going to prevent him from coming, and we we're going to do everything we could to make sure the event would take place. This time, uh, he worked with a very new and very small organization called the Berkeley Patriot, which is a kind of periodic newspaper which is picking up on the Patriot more generally. And it is uh, 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 run by a, a student who was trying to handle uh, all the different kinds of things he had to deal with, demands from Milo about security, demands from Milo about uh, allowing his bodyguards and private security to come onto campus, uh, demands from Milo about uh, basically controlling the time, place, and manner of his week and weekly parade of, of conservative speakers. Uh, and, um, uh, and, of course, it turned out as was widely reported in the press, uh, that most of the speakers that he was announcing were going to come had never been contacted about it or certainly didn't intend to come. Uh, So on Friday evening, uh, before before Free Speech Week was supposed to begin on on Saturday, the Berkeley Patriots said, we can't can't go on with this. And they they canceled it. They called it off. Uh, They've now sued us as a university because uh, they feel that we made life too difficult for them and did so in a way that was politically prejudiced. But um, I can't comment about suits uh, and the like, but that's, that's the current state of play. But you all saw what happened. Milo came. He did uh, what uh, the press officer at Berkeley called the most expensive photo op in Berkeley's history. He came for his 15 minutes of fame, took pictures, and left. And that was it. Um, we nevertheless spent last week $800,000 to, to secure the campus to arrange for uh, uh, public safety uh, being kept because we had very credible threats coming both from extreme right groups and from some of the extreme left groups, by which I mean the Antifa, uh, that they were going to come and, uh, and, and, and possibly uh, enact violence on the campus. 
Question following up on the question of money and not only the expenditure of the university, but of student groups and maybe involved and interested in bringing expensive peepers, uh, speakers to campus. A uh, question from the audience is, why not require funded student groups to help provide security on campus for free speech events? wondering if you might, maybe in responding to that, let us uh, get insight into how Cal handles this use of student groups with these high-profile speakers with extensive costs attached to these visits. So a uh, couple of things. First, uh, if a student group invites a speaker, uh, we feel that we should honor that request and uh, subject to you know, following the rules, allow it to happen. And in fact, uh, under the terms of the First Amendment, uh, once we allow them to do that, we are obliged to do it for speakers from whatever political position they might come from. Uh, and uh, we are also obliged under the terms of the First Amendment and jurisprudence surrounding it and following it uh, to make sure that whatever uh, kind of security that is, uh, that is stood for an event should be consistent and not itself a manner of imposing uh, the university's political judgment about a particular visitor. So it doesn't matter if it's somebody on the right or somebody on the left. Uh, um, it should be the same, uh, the same cost and the same procedure. Uh, we are a public university, and we're obliged under uh, the terms of, uh, of, of determinations about uh, how public universities are, are government properties and government entities to, uh, to be quite uh, f uh, fundamentalist in our interpretation of free speech. But, uh, but beyond that, I mean, the, the whole point of a university campus is for student groups to be allowed to be uh, inviting speakers and to be uh, uh, having... Uh, uh, Arguments about the events and, and 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 issues of our day. All of that, of course, before we started spending masses amount of money for this. And so the real question now is, what do we do? If there's going to be a regular uh, repetition of of this kind of uh, invitation, uh, you know, do we even more, uh, uh, even further bankrupt ourselves? Um, but how do we do so in a way that is, in fact, genuinely non-discriminatory? Picking up on that, uh, and you mentioned this in your talk as well, um, uh, there's been many objections uh, from students, often uh, uh, students of color and others, about uh, hateful rhetoric on campus. Um, at the same time, there's a study I saw recently um, saying that a fifth of college students um, have no objection to a speaker who is offensive or harmful being shut down on campus. So what are the limits to hate speech on campus, if any, um, by outside speakers, by students? How did you address those issues in your time as chancellor? Well, I've felt ever since uh, I began doing academic administration that it was critical, uh, and this was at Columbia before I came to, uh, to Berkeley, it was critical to, uh, uh, again, to support um, uh, students who would uh, who would invite speakers and to support uh, uh, the right of those speakers to to say what they uh, wh what they had in mind. Um, the th and there were some cases even at, at Columbia where uh, where where concerns were raised. There was a president of Iran back in 2007, Ahmadinejad, uh, who uh, uh, was invited to campus and uh, uh, and we uh, honored that invitation and it was widely seen as 
as something that was, uh, was a complete violation of the ethics of the university, since Ahmadinejad had called for the destruction of Israel and he denied the Holocaust. So uh, uh, there were serious uh, protests around that. And, uh, and I think it's fair to say it, 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 it left an impact on the university for years, uh, given the, the heat that was directed towards it. But, um, but again, uh, you start censoring one, one person, one set of views, and it will come back to haunt you. Berkeley itself was, uh, before the stories that I began to tell in the 60s, was the uh, place where the loyalty oath was imposed in 1949, basically to keep uh, uh, communists off the faculty. Uh, and it led to a big, uh, 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 a big protest among faculty and ultimately was ruled constitutionally unacceptable. So, you know, uh, there's that. And then I will confess that uh, although I've been, uh, I've sort of had many student protests directed at me over the last few years, the first time I went to a president's office, I wasn't actually invited to that office (laughs) back back in the day. And, um, you know, uh, we were very upset about the war in Vietnam, and we were upset about civil rights, and, uh, and we wanted to have speakers, you know. So... Stokely Carmichael, to a lot of people, to Ronald Reagan, was, uh, was saying things that were unthinkable when he was talking about black power. But the same kind of uh, uh, regulations that would keep Milo from coming would have kept Stokely from coming. And I think it's incumbent on us as universities. Where else, if not universities, can one actually have the theater of, of extreme ideas? Uh, violence, of course, is another matter. And, uh, of course, this is part of the constitutional debate. When does language become violent? We know now, I mean, we have, over the last decades, in fact, accorded more and more power to speech. Uh, we've really, and many, uh, uh, many students have been part of this, as, as also faculty, have been really deeply concerned about the extent to which uh, the old adage, sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me, is not true. We know that words can hurt. People. We know this, uh, and that's one of the reasons that we uh, try to educate members of our community about microaggressions of all kinds of, uh, uh, of different, um, you know, of, of many different kinds. Uh, but the, um, the balance here is one in which, uh, since hate speech is not uh, actually against the law, it's not, it is constitutionally protected, uh, we have to be very, I think, um, uh, open about how we interpret uh, what free speech means. Uh, and that does mean uh, having uh, debates that are very uncomfortable. And I'll just say one other thing, which is that Du Faust, the president of Harvard, addressed this issue in her commencement address uh, last spring. And she did say that in her view, the, uh, uh, the commitment to free speech uh, uh, basically imposed a special burden on students uh, from underrepresented backgrounds and minority communities. Uh, and uh, I, think, I think that we would all agree that's true, although the authors, of, uh, authors associated with the Heterodox Academy have recently written a piece in, I think, Atlantic, in which they've argued that that doesn't necessarily hold true uh, uh, because, of course, it's often um, the speech of minorities get, that, gets, that, that, that in sort of the public square will get... Um, will get censored. Uh, and uh, in that same piece by Joe Lepore in The New Yorker today, she, she mentions the fact that Stokely Carmichael, when he came to Berkeley, said, it's absolutely critical that I speak here because 
basically, if you get rid of free speech, you get rid of the possibility that a black man like me can actually say what I'm thinking. Um, another question here is uh, that at many universities, including Berkeley and Santa Clara, the vast majority of faculty are politically quite liberal. Is this a problem? If so, uh, how should it be addressed? And I frame that even, I think this is implicit in the question, in light of your concern about the kind of the status of the university and its credibility in our political and public society now. You know, I think, I think the... Uh, it's a very hard question uh, because uh, there's always the notion when you ask a question like that or you pose a question like that, there's always the notion that somehow or another uh, we're not balanced. Uh, if we don't have a relatively equal group of Republicans and Democrats or conservatives and liberals or... Well, actually, or what? You know, you could take that and expand it out uh, and say that uh, this is balanced within a particular kind of frame. Uh, it's, it's ideological or um, uh, yeah, ideological diversity of a certain kind uh, that, you know, may not be the same as and often isn't the same as uh, a diversity of opinion uh, that uh, might be more appropriate for the kinds of subjects that people teach. Uh, there are also limits on the kind of diversity you want. You don't really want uh, uh, a scientist who believes in evolution in most modern uh, universities. There are some that do. Uh, and uh, we had a, a faculty member at Berkeley, an esteemed biologist, who was completely against uh, uh, climate change. And, you know, that was... that that became a problem because there was a sense that it wasn't an ideological uh, uh, divergence so much as it was just bad science. So to your question or to uh, a question that some of you uh, doubtless have posed, uh, I, don't, I think it would be a terrible thing if we started having a political litmus uh, test for hiring faculty. I think what uh, all of us, regardless of our political positions, uh, need to do is to examine and re-examine how we uh, teach, uh, not how we communicate in the public sphere, but how we, how we teach and how we are genuinely open to different points of view. Uh, and how, uh, you know, for example, one of the things that the, the Heterodox Academy has claimed <clears throat> is that many students, in order to make their point about ideological diversity being necessary, is that students who are very religious uh, in certain kinds of fundamentalist ways uh, might feel themselves to be repeatedly disparaged in a classroom where there's a kind of secular convention or a set of norms that, that operate. Um, well, if that's the case, you can also imagine that there might be uh, very conservative students who feel the same thing, that they're disparaged, that they are not welcome, that they cannot speak. And that would be the terrible thing, or that is the terrible thing. How do you address that? I don't think you address it by, uh, uh, by monitoring faculty. But I think we do have an obligation as a, as a community that has uh, the great and wonderful privilege of academic freedom uh, to remember that academic freedom is not to say anything in the classroom. It's actually to conduct classrooms uh, in a way that is open uh, to different points of view and yet nevertheless guided by professional norms that are norms of the discipline or norms of the field. 
and you can go back and look at the AAUP uh, guidelines for academic freedom from 1940 and from 1970, and they make real distinctions about what academic freedom means outside the classroom and what it means inside. So, uh, one of the uh, and this is a we um, have a a unit of Turning Points USA here on campus, and I know they're around the country and have the professor watch list. I think of this following on your comment, where uh, students have posted names of faculty whom they feel in the classroom do what you have just said, that they're too ideological, too single-minded. What if you could comment on something like that phenomenon, a professor watch list, and how that fits into the notion of academic freedom, freedom of speech, uh, and the kind of development working with faculty on campus. Well, this, by the way, has been going on even before social media. Uh, uh, so there was something called Campus Watch uh, that um, uh, went around and encouraged students to record back in the days that uh, we used little cassette recorders to, uh, uh, to record professors and to find evidence of, uh, of, of, of political or ideological bias. Uh, it was I documented at UCLA. Uh, it happened at Columbia. Um, often, and in the case of Campus Watch, uh, this was the case, uh, it was uh, about questions in the Middle East, mostly concerning Israel and Palestine. But, uh, but the same thing would happen that happens now even more uh, uh, with great, much greater velocity uh, because of social media. Certain faculty would be publicly criticized for taking positions in, in classrooms. And then the administration would be importune to discipline the faculty member and in some cases to fire them and certainly not give them tenure. So it, um, it's just gotten worse. And, 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 uh, and now social media uh, has been used both to go after uh, professors in classrooms but also to go after, of course, professors in, their, uh, in the public sphere, sphere uh, whether on Twitter or uh, in comments they're making or in a commencement speech um, and other, uh, other kinds of well-publicized events of late. Uh, and, you know, this is where trolling uh, really does uh, direct itself in a very vicious way. Uh, and, uh, and it can have real consequences. And I think uh, for faculty who have tenure, they're pretty well protected for the most part. But for untenured faculty, for adjunct faculty... Uh, 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 you know, the less security of employment you have, the more I think you are vulnerable to these kinds of attacks. And there are cases where, of course, even with tenure, I think there have been attacks that have been uh, uh, that have been very serious. So, um, so this, of course, you know, again uh, raises the question. You know, people have free speech rights; they can say what they want on Twitter, uh, but. Uh, but once again, uh, and this is my argument about the assault on the university, I think uh, we have to find ways to defend uh, uh, the intellectual life uh, and intellectual freedom and academic freedom. Uh, unfortunately, academic freedom doesn't have a lot of respect in the world outside the university. And as much as it's understood, it's seen as a license to do anything, say anything, uh, and be anything uh, with a job uh, from which you never have to retire. Uh, and uh, uh, for which you have to only put in nine, ten hours a week. You know, this is, of course, again, part of the, the litany of complaints that are made about, about the professoriate and the university more generally. So um, it's tricky how we do this, and uh, I don't have any um, wonderful solutions for how we, in, how, we, how we deal with this, but I think in the short term, we certainly have to be 
uh, ready to uh, incur considerable uh, um, uh, critique, often from within the university or within the power structures of the university, uh, to defend the professoriate and to defend academic freedom. I think you've spoken a lot about sort of paralleling the 1960s to today in terms of the university. Is the role of the university in your judgment in society today different from what it was in the 1960s? And also, to what extent does the issue of corporatization influence the role of the university today in light of... Maybe I'll make those two questions. Let's start with number one. Uh, is the role of the university today different from what it was in society in the 1960s? Well, it's a different moment in a number of, uh, a number of respects. I mean, first of all, the move towards, and this is a terrible word, but uh, you'll get it, um, the move towards the massification of higher education in the United States began after World War II. Uh, it began with the GI Bill, which was probably the most transformational piece of legislation uh, for universities uh, that's ever happened, and that includes the creation by Vannevar Bush of NSF and other federal agencies to support research. But the, um, uh, uh, you know, the, the University of California, again, I mean, it, 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 was, uh, it was being uh, expanded and uh, enhanced at the very time the state of California was undergoing a tra- demographic surge uh, uh, with uh, you know exponential increases of the population uh, every every year it seemed, and so the um, you know the kinds of issues that it was dealing with at the time uh, were ones that had to do with you know this American dream, this idea of social mobility, only to find all of a sudden that this new generation of students seem not to be very happy about it, and they seem to be, and this leads to your next question, they seem to be concerned about the corporatization. Uh, or the association of the university with the military-industrial complex, a, word, a, a phrase that Eisenhower actually came up with. But, you know, the 60s were a time of turmoil in every possible way, and they were generational as much as anything else. And I think, uh, uh, I think, I think that set in motion, much as that 1970 Newsweek article uh, uh, did, uh, a, a different kind of ad- attitude about the university. Uh, uh, but today, uh, we're encountering so much more. And, you know, just as an example, I mean, nobody was going after expertise in science in 1970 or in the 60s. Uh, they were going after it being used in the service of the military-industrial complex and so on and so forth. But we're now at a place when almost everything we do uh, is being criticized by somebody or another. On the question of the corporatization of the university, I get asked this a lot because uh, one of the issues that was raised when I came from Columbia was that I wished to privatize the university. My response to that was always, well, I didn't privatize uh, the university. That was the state that did that uh, when it uh, dramatically cut funding. But I, uh, I, I do uh, realize that uh, when you take more and more money from, first of all, individual donors and then from corporations and industry, uh, you have to be very clear about uh, what is being funded and the terms under which it is being funded. Uh, but I think that the university as a whole, and the universities I've been associated with in particular, have managed to, uh, to really uh, figure it out. But it's something about which transparency and public debate needs to take place, to be sure, in order to constantly reaffirm the values of the university itself. 
Well, I regret to say uh, we have unfortunately reached the time where we have time for one last question, and I actually wanted, if I might, to appeal to your sort of work in the other side of your life as an expert in South Asian history, um, having written many books on British colonial rule on the South Asian uh, continent. And I know you've uh, mentioned thinking about Gandhi in light of these challenges of today at Cal around speech and our society. I was wondering if you might... Um, share with us, what do you think Gandhi has to tell us in these politically contentious times uh, that we're living through right now? Well, it's a great question to ask, especially today. Today is Gandhi Jayanti, which is the birthday of Gandhi, October 2nd. Uh, and I wrote my, uh, my first uh, serious piece of scholarly work about Gandhi. And it, he's nev- you know, his, his inspiration never leaves me. But I certainly have learned, and I've tried to talk about this a great deal at at Cal, uh, of the importance of understanding the principles uh, that he brought to civil disobedience, to uh, uh, to nonviolent, non-cooperation, and the way in which he, and of course, uh, uh, he taught much and was uh, very influential to Martin Luther King Jr., uh, the way he did this was not passive. He never called it passive resistance. It was always active. But by being nonviolent, not only do you live by your values, you also dramatize the violence of the other. And it's that kind of dra- dramatization of civil disobedience that ultimately put the British in a light of being uh, seen as oppressors by, uh, uh, by many who um, otherwise wouldn't have seen it, certainly not if there were uh, dominantly violent uh, forms of resistance. My argument to students who encourage Antifa, uh, my argument to, uh, to the Antifa itself, is that they provide an easy target, and they do much more harm when they shut down something like Milianopolis at Berkeley than anything good. Thank you very much, Professor Dirks. I hope you all enjoyed this evening's program brought to you by the Markula Center for Applied Ethics and the Commonwealth Club Silicon Valley. Again, we would like to thank Nicholas Dirks, former chancellor and professor of history and anthropology at the University of California, Berkeley, our audience here at Santa Clara University, and those of you joining us on the radio. And now this meeting is adjourned. Thank you very much.